0: Welcome to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Thanks for listening. Our desire is to help you advance in your faith journey no matter where you are. For more information on our church, please check out cthope.com. Well, good morning, Hope Church. It's another week, and Jesus is still in control. Uh, A lot of crazy stuff, obviously, going on in our nation with the counts for the vote, and I don't know, by the time we see this, we may know who the next president or the president is. We don't know. We don't know. But truth doesn't change. As we talked about last week with Daniel 4, uh, who God has chosen to lead our country is going to be known eventually, and God is still in control, and I put my hope and my faith in that, and because of that, I can sleep well. Beth and I went to bed Tuesday night, 10 o'clock, and it was just awesome to see that God still just gives peace in the midst of a time where our world desperately needs peace. I do want us to be praying for our nation. Obviously, there's a lot of tension over this election. You know, the last few, there's been a lot, and I want to take that very seriously and not lightheartedly, that we need to be praying for our country and the division that is going on right now, and we need to pray that the church is not complicit in it. We need to pray that the church remembers the true kingdom over the kingdoms of men. We're going to continue our series today, uh, Culture Shock, where we have been taking a look at the book of Daniel and how Daniel and his friends lived their lives in a culture that was completely opposed to what they believed about God and the God that they worshiped. And we've seen over the last few weeks this and uh, continuing into it today today. Uh, start by telling you, uh, back when I was in college, I worked a whole bunch of different jobs. I probably mentioned it. I worked at a soft pretzel place. I worked at Radio Shack. I worked at a retirement home, as security. I had all these crazy jobs, and I used to make fun of a lot of them. One of the ones that I did have uh, was that I worked at Nike Factory Outlet for a little over a year, and uh, Nike Factory Outlet was awesome. It was, it was great. I got there. I got free clothes like every quarter. They'd give me really top-notch Nike stuff as part of our uniforms. Got to pick shoes and all this. It was great. I enjoyed it, and it was a good time for me to learn a lot about marketing and how you put stuff and present stuff so it's attractive for people to buy. Well, the Nike Factory Outlet that I worked at was one that uh, many of the uh, of Nike's headquarters would send managers in training too, and they would come and they would work in our store for about a month or two to get more practical training, uh, really cut their teeth, and then they would be shipped out to the store that they would be overseeing around the country. One of the managers in trainings that they brought in was a man named Chris. He came up from Florida to Lancaster uh, County, PA, and, and that was funny. There's a lot of funny stories about it, especially springtime in Lancaster. If you've ever been there, Let's just say it's very aromatic with the farms around there. And I'll leave it at that. And I'll never forget him coming in one day just because it stunk outside. And anyway, all that to say this Chris came in, and Chris was funny. Chris was bright. Chris was engaging. Chris was awesome. And every one of us who worked at that store fell in love with him. To the point it was like we wish he wasn't going to be shipped off somewhere else. We wanted him to stay there. Chris knew how to have a good time. But Chris also knew how to get us to lock in and work hard and focus on things. We took him seriously when he said to be serious. When it was time to relax, we would relax. Everybody loved Chris. And for the month and a half that we had him at our store, we just enjoyed every minute of it. And the time came after his training was over at our store Uh, The time came when he went and uh, was saying his final farewell to us. We had a team meeting, we all got together, we were bummed because we really enjoyed him and we didn't want to say goodbye, but he began and uh, he just asked us a question, he's like, so tell me something, Um, if you could have dinner with one famous person throughout history, who would it be? And so we all went around and some of them were funny, some of them were serious and all that, and then he came to him, he said, you know who I would? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Because I have a lot of things I want to ask him because of my faith in him. Well, here I am, a Bible college student. (laughs) He's been a Christian. I never even knew that. I knew there was something about Chris that was different and how he treated people and how he lived his life. He he wasn't getting into trouble or or, uh, talking, you know, about things that he shouldn't be with some of the other employees and so on. Chris lived a different life. And when he shared in that moment, My crew at the store, who I was basically the only Christian I knew of at that time, were just totally enraptured in what he was saying. And they listened to him. Why? Chris had won them. Before Chris made his faith even known, Chris just chose to love people. Chris just chose to be a good employee and to work hard and motivate people uh, to be the best that they could be and be real with them if they needed correction or if they needed time off because they were hurting or whatever. Chris was the real deal. And I will always remember Chris because he impacted my view of how we as Christians should be in the world around us. Uh, We know that our culture that we live in stereotypes Christians. You see it all on TV. That's why the Simpsons has Ned Flanders. And I know none of us are like Ned Flanders. I certainly hope I'm not like Ned Flanders. But we know there are stereotypes about what Christians are. It's either Ned Flanders or Westboro Baptist Church. And knowing our church, none of you are like either of those. None of you. And so it bothers us when we see these stereotypes. Some of us actually do live up to those stereotypes. But most of us don't. Most of us want a life that looks like Jesus. We just want to live among people, love people, live our convictions, and go on. And so this is where conflict comes in with us. How do we live in an engaging fashion in the culture around us? By holding to our convictions. How do we become winsome? Especially when... uh, The government and leadership and culture is becoming more and more anti-our faith, more and more anti-all religions, but especially Christianity. How on earth do we live out these kingdom principles? Today we're going to continue with Daniel. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 6 today. A very familiar story, by the way, Daniel and the lion's den. Some of you have heard that story since you were a kid, my kids know it well. But I want to take a look at some interesting things in this passage. And I may not spend a lot of time on some of the areas that we kind of know already. Uh, but I want us to look at how Daniel lived his life in this time. I'll set it up this way. Uh, where we left last week, we, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar declaring God to be the true God. We talked about the fact that after he passed away, his son Belshazzar took over Uh, the nation of Babylonia. And he, like his father did in his younger years, wrestled with pride. He thought his kingdom was all about him. And look at how wonderful I am. Like so many leaders are deceived into thinking these days. He thought it was all about him. And where chapter five ends is that Belshazzar, it is prophesied that he will lose his kingdom that very night. And sure enough, he does. Because the Medes and the Persians are standing outside the gates of Babylon. And they come marching on in. And there's a new empire overseeing and ruling over Babylon and the Babylonian kingdom. The Medes and the Persians were led by Cyrus. Uh, we believe that Cyrus was also called Darius, who is going to be the main character in the passage that we see today next to Daniel. Darius is the leader In at least the Babylonian and Babylon right now, the empire, he oversees them. And we can pick that up from this passage. And as he's overseeing it, he genuinely cares about being a successful empire. So he puts administration in charge of Babylon. And the Babylonian empire, he puts 120 different princes called satraps over the entire area to administer justice, to take care of things, to make sure people are paying their taxes and so on. Over these 120 princes, he puts three, we'll call them presidents, over the 120. And these three presidents are given a lot of authority. One of them in particular is a familiar name, Daniel. Daniel has now served in, the Neb- in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, government. He served a bit in Belshazzar's government. And lo and behold, here he is again with a whole new empire who knew nothing about him and what he had done previously. Here he is rising up to a high level of administration in the government of the Persians. Darius likes Daniel. And we're going to start in this passage of Daniel 6 and verse 3. It says this. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners, that's the other presidents, and satraps. Because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king intended to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Daniel starts to stick out. Even amongst his co-workers, if you will. He stands out. It says he had an extraordinary spirit. The spirit of God was working in Daniel. Daniel. Daniel was different than everyone else. All the others were seeking high positions, seeking fame, seeking to be more powerful. Daniel, he just did what he does all the time. God had given him gifts of administration and leadership, and he just did it to its fullest because he knew it was a gift from God. And so regardless of who was in charge, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, or Darius, he just sought to be who he was. And so he did. And it says here that the king intended to appoint him over the entire kingdom. He was going to become the second in charge. Darius looks at him, he's like, this guy, has got it. By the way, Daniel is about 90 years old at this point. When we started this book, he was probably around 16. 74 years have passed. And here he is, an old man, and still just killing it with the gifts that God has given him. And this man, uh, Darius, looks at him and says, I want to put him over the entire kingdom. It goes on in verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel regarding government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption because he was trustworthy. And no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So some envy starts to build up with the commissioners and the satraps are like we got to find a way to get rid of this guy. I want his position. I want to be the favorite person and I'm sick of him winning the employee of the month or the employee of the year award all the time. He keeps getting the prize, parking spot and so on. We got to find a way to eliminate him. And so they start looking for something. And they can't find anything. Imagine that, a politician that isn't corrupt. And he lives such an impeccable life, they can't find any corruption or you know, seedy personal life or anything that they can accuse him of. He just rises to the top and does what a person who loves God and follows God should do. And so they realize this. And it says in verse five, then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him regarding the law of his God. So they're going personal now. They're gonna say, the only way we're gonna be able to find anything wrong with this guy to get him in trouble is if we go after his faith. We know Daniel was known for his faith. Not only was he known as a great administrator, but it comes up time and time again, and you'll even see it with Darius in a little bit. They knew he was a man of faith. He didn't hide that at all. They weren't like, well, we don't know. Does he have any religion? No, they knew it, and they knew that the only way that they'd be able to catch him is if they came up with something that would make Daniel tempt, uh, would tempt Daniel to compromise his faith. And so they do. You can read this uh, in this passage. They concoct a law and they take it to Darius and they say, Darius, you are amazing, King. Oh, man, I, 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 we love you. I have your picture on my desk, I've got your picture all around my house. I mean, my kids play King Darius all day long in the yard because you're just so amazing. You know what? Because you're so amazing, Darius, here's what we want to do. We want to set aside 30 days where everybody in this kingdom doesn't pray to their gods, they just pray and worship you. Just because you're so amazing, why not? And it says that Darius looks at that and for some reason does not think about Daniel, who was known for his faith, and he ad- admired. It says that Darius is like, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal. It's basically a month-long holiday. It's Darius Day. I mean, come on, darius Uh Whatever you want to call it. And he signs off on this law, and once he had signed off on this law, it could not be taken back. There was no way, according to the law, the Medes and the Persians that it could be retracted. And so... It goes on in verse 10, it says this. Now when Daniel learned that the document or the law was signed, he entered his house and in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, his homeland, which by the way is in ruins at this time. He's facing Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying And offering praise before God, just as he had been doing previously. Daniel hears this law has been signed that he is only allowed to worship Darius. Daniel says, Cool, sorry. I worship a different king. I work and I respect Darius. I like Darius. But my allegiance is to a different kingdom. Not this kingdom. And so, Daniel, it says, goes up to his house, opens his window, faces Jerusalem, prays three times a day. That's not a magic trick there. If you pray three times a day, you're gonna get what you want. That's not it at all. It says that when he prays, he worships God. It's not him going there saying, oh God, please take away this horrible law. Please. It's so bad. I gotta do something online about this to get people to sign against this law. He doesn't do that. It says he worships God. God. He asked for favor from God in his life three times a day, on his knees. I don't know if you've ever prayed on your knees before, but it's a sign of humility. Daniel knew that for 70 plus years, the one thing that had been consistent in his life, not kingdoms, not kings, not even his job, was God. And he was not gonna compromise that And so Daniel, it says, did what he did the day before the law was signed. I'm not going to change anything. All my success and all that has happened in my life, I have seen God give me the ability to interpret dreams, uh, get fat on a vegetarian diet as we talked about the first week. I have seen God save my friends uh, from a fiery furnace. Why would I change things now? Seriously? You think about it. Daniel could have said, well, maybe I'll just pray in private. And still do it, but not be in your face. Daniel also could have been. Well, fine. Hey, I'm gonna res- I'm gonna rebel against the government. You can't tell me to do this. And in a sense, you do see Daniel do civil disobedience here. Something that the church has talked about uh, in America and around the world, especially when it comes to COVID. Should the church do civil disobedience and still assemble? My problem is this: civil disobedience can be a great thing. As we know, Martin Luther King was one of the fathers of civil disobedience. But it's civil disobedience, not uncivil disobedience. If we stand by our convictions in a way that is winsome and attractive and, and, and not having a superiority, conf, uh, 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 superiority complex over other people because they don't believe this. It's winsome. If we shove it in people's face, if we're violent and destructive and so on, it is no longer civil disobedience. And frankly, it's no longer of God. Now it has become uncivil. Daniel, when he did his civil disobedience, did it in such a way that it was respectful He didn't go into the middle of the street and begin to pray or make some big show about it. Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm breaking the law. No, he went about things the way he did before in a respectful manner of his friend, King Darius. Daniel was loyal to one kingdom over an ever-changing one. And that's my big idea. No one can fully serve two kingdoms. You either serve the kingdom of God or you serve the kingdom of men it is hard to double dip I'm not saying it's impossible Daniel served in an earthly kingdom but Daniel's priority was always the kingdom of God above the kingdom of men so the accusers catch Daniel they see Daniel praying he's breaking the law yes we did it yes let's go tell Darius they go and they tell King Darius hey uh, you remember that law you wrote the other day oh great king you're awesome we love you we love you Well, we we saw somebody breaking that law. Yeah, I think you might know him. Oh, he's a Jewish exile. It's interesting that the passage here makes sure to indicate that they discriminated against him and calling him a Jewish exile. He's a second-class, third-class citizen. Oh, it's your friend, Daniel, that one that we know you like better than us. What are you gonna do now, king? And it says in verse 14, then as soon as the king heard this statement, He was deeply distressed and set his mind on rescuing Daniel. And until sunset, when he had to make a declaration, he kept exerting himself to save him. Darius liked Daniel. Someone who believed in a God that Darius did not. He might have even thought Daniel was weird to believe what he did. But he went out of his way. Because he liked Daniel. He believed in Daniel. There was something, an extraordinary spirit about Daniel. He could not deny. And so he did everything he could to try to stop this from happening. He couldn't. And so Daniel was sent to a lion's den, basically a cavern. In verse 16, it says Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, your God, whom you continually serve, will, rescue, will himself rescue you. Wow, this guy doesn't even believe in Daniel's God as far as we know, but he, he has hope. And he's throwing out that statement out there. Daniel, I really hope that the God you are faithful to and you are in this lion's den as a result of, I hope he rescues you. I do I care for you. I like you. It says that Darius struggles that night. He goes back to his throne room or his palace, and he can't sleep the whole night. He's so worked up and distressed about what is going on. Some of you felt this way about the election this past Tuesday. You didn't go to bed till like four. You were so distressed. That's how Darius felt. He didn't want Daniel to die. He said he was so distressed that his female... Well, basically what it implies here in this passage is female entertainers don't show up for the night. We'll leave that to your imagination. If he's that distressed that his female entertainers aren't coming in and he doesn't even want them there, this dude is worked up, okay? This is someone he genuinely cares about. It says that the next morning he runs out to the lion's den at the first break of light and he yells into the, the, the lion's den, Daniel, has your God saved you? And he hears a voice back and it is Daniel's. And Daniel tells him, yes, my God did. He sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. And of course, Darius rejoices. He punishes the ones who used him, used him to thwart his plan for what he should do with this kingdom. He throws them to the lions, as was customary for the Persian kingdom. That you don't just execute the people that did it, you execute their family too. Horrible. But then on top of it, something happens at the very end of the passage that I just want you to think about, especially those of you that know this story well, that may not have been such a good thing. Daniel was saved by God, but Darius swings the pendulum from worshiping him for 30 days to almost another extreme. In verse 26, Darius says, I issue a decree that in all the realm of my kingdom, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. It seems as though Darius has turned the corner just as Nebuchadnezzar did. follow the God of Daniel, but he's enforcing it by law on the people. And this is where I'm, I twinge a little bit, because sometimes we seek government or political power to try to solve spiritual problems. In fact, I I know I put this up on Facebook for those of you that are friends with me, but a pastor friend of, uh, well, connection that I know, Maddie Montgomery, said this, there are no political solutions for spiritual problems. The church has become so accustomed to expecting the spiritual problems of our nation to be solved through political means, and there is a part of that where it is helpful. But ultimately, when we enforce laws upon people whose hearts are far from God, then they just go through motions, and that is as toxic as anything That's as toxic as anything. Darius enforces the worship of God. I don't know if that's always a good thing. And we see it even in American history with the Puritans who enforced laws upon people who may not have even been following the God of the Puritans and how unhealthy that turned out. This is an interesting story, but I want to close with a few quick challenges. How does this impact you? First, If you don't want to fall in an anti-Christian culture like we are living in, intimacy with God is paramount for your life right now. I've talked about spending time in God's word. I've talked about a prayer life over and over and over and over again. Your intimacy with God, your closeness with him, just as was the case with Daniel who prayed three times a day, God saturated his life. God saturated his life. Your life must be saturated with Christ if you ever intend to be able to stand in an anti-Christian culture. If it's casual or nominal, you will compromise and you will fall. Secondly, faithfulness to God will cause friction. Daniel chose to be faithful to the kingdom, not a kingdom. And it caused friction with coworkers. It caused friction with those that disagreed with the God that he worshipped. It caused friction in his life that even sent him to a lion's den. Whatever the case, do not be surprised that living for kingdom principles, the kingdom of God, causes friction. There are some things about Christianity that will never, ever be popular, and we have to learn to accept that. Jesus said, the world will hate you because of me. That's just a promise. (laughs) It's not a promise we like. There's never going to be an opportunity for the church to be so likable all the time with everything that they believe that a world that does not worship or even believe in God is gonna just love everything that they stand for unless they too become his follower. Lastly, if faithfulness to God becomes criminal then live attractively. If your faith becomes criminal, a criminal offense, live attractively according to the principles that you believe in. Daniel chose to live his faith. He lived it every day. And it was attractive that even a king liked him. Liked him. This is, I think, what the church has been missing. The church, too, often becomes, uh, comes across hypocritical, judgmental, um, superior. And we just need to get back to being attractive and winsome. And by attractive, I don't mean that we compromise what we believe. It's in how we stand by what we believe. The secular world needs to find us attractive, faithful to our convictions, be living lives of integrity, and having winsome convictions. And somebody, may this be true of the church, somebody who treats their worst opposition with humanity, love, and equality. Even those that hate us. Even those that would snuff out the church, if at all possible. We must have winsome lives and winsome convictions. Things that people stand back and say, I like how they're living, and they have an extraordinary spirit. Maybe I should lean into that. So I close with the challenge. Live with winsome convictions this week. Sometimes we need to just stop spouting off as much about what we, where we stand on an issue, whatever that issue is. Maybe we just need to live that issue and what we believe about it from God's Word and be a little less concerned if people come to our side of things. We need to start with us and change the world through our example before people will ever lean in and listen to us. Let's be attractive. Let's pray. God, I thank you for another opportunity just open your word and learn from Daniel. And I ask that you would help us to have winsome lives, Lord, that we would not compromise our convictions or your word. (laughs) Some of what we believe is grossly unpopular and will always be grossly unpopular in the world around us. Lord, help us to stay true to our convictions, but do so with humility and with an intimate relationship with you. And Lord, may our lives, as you work through us, be the thing that attracts others to you, not to us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.